This is the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, February 25th, 2021. I'm your host, Dakota Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Ellie Shannon will be updating you on campus news, and then I'll be delivering local news. After that, we'll be hearing new updates in sports with the RMR Sports Report. And I will be speaking to Mental Health Colorado CEO Vincent Achity about a bill making its way through the state legislature. Then, Code will be delivering some national news. It will be hearing from Cody Cook with some highlights from his episode of Takes from the Anthropocene. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 and speaking to Piper Russell from the Collegian. To conclude the show, Code will be giving some updates on technology, and I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hi everyone, I'm Ellie Shannon, and thanks for tuning in to your weekly newscast on KCSU. We're still in our sixth week of school here at Colorado State University, and we have some pretty interesting stories for the campus this week. CSU's Online Master of Business Administration and Online Master of Computer Information Systems programs were awarded first in Colorado by U.S. News & World Report. The online MBA was also ranked top 35 in the nation for public programs, according to Piper Russell of the Collegian. Beth Walker, the dean for the College of Business, explained that the college will continue to evolve in the future, so a big congratulations to the College of Business. After weeks of no competition, the Rams cross-country team finished 7th overall this past weekend at Battleborn Collegiate Cross-Country Challenge hosted by the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Scott Neese of the Collegian reported that the team will need to keep their front runners balanced to be ready for Mountain West Conference Championship meet in about a week and a half. Make sure to listen to the Rocky Mountain Review on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. for up-to-date newscasts and features. I'm Ellie Shannon presenting your weekly news, and you're listening to KCSU on 90.5 FM. KCSU wants to hear your voice this Black History Month. Let us know what underrepresented people and events in Black history you think more people should be aware of. Leave us a voicemail at 970-491-2388 for a chance to be featured on KCSU. Again, that number is 970-491-2388. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and this is your local news for today. Wastewater testing indicates that Larimer County could soon have another increase in COVID-19 cases. According to Sadie Swanson at the Coloradoan, Larimer County Health Director Tom Gonzalez told the Larimer County Commissioners during Tuesday's meeting that results from Thursday showed an increase in COVID-19 viral load throughout Fort Collins and Loveland, calling the increase, quote, fairly significant. Wastewater testing is used statewide as an early indicator for potential COVID-19 outbreaks. Colorado State University has been conducting wastewater testing to identify potential coronavirus outbreaks in on-campus housing before the virus has a chance to spread. The testing also has identified COVID-19 variants, Gonzalez said, including more contagious variants that were first detected in the United Kingdom. The variant is about 30% to 50% more transmissible than the first strain of the virus. Gonzalez said that it took three to four months for the variant to become the dominant strain in the UK, which is concerning for local health officials. 
Gonzalez warned the people will need to continue taking precautions, saying, quote, We want to make sure this doesn't trend back up and that we're seeing with the wastewater. We're really asking everyone to please take this seriously, end quote. A recent report has found that nearly 40% of teachers across Colorado are considering leaving the profession after this academic year. According to Joe McQueen at the Pueblo Chieftain, a report from the Colorado Education Association found the main sources of teacher dissatisfaction are the increasing workload, current working conditions during the pandemic, and low salaries. Amy Spock, president of the Pueblo County Education Association, said that, quote, I'm not that all surprised. School districts in Colorado are chronically underfunded. Teachers in Colorado are well under the national average for teacher pay. We're also underfunded compared to other states. Older teachers were found to be more likely to consider leaving after this year, as 53% of teachers ages 60 to 69 years old said they were considering leaving, and 45% of teachers aged 50 to 59 years said that they're considering a career change as well, according to the report. The lack of state funding for Colorado's public schools has greatly accelerated the workload for teachers. Spock said, as a result of the funding cuts, classroom sizes have increased. Elementary classes are up to nearly 30 students each, and secondary classes are getting up to 35 students or more. The report lays out three strategies it proposes state lawmakers adopt to address teachers' concerns. Increasing revenue by raising the corporate tax and buying down the multi-billion dollar budget stabilization factor, where education funding is cut in order to balance the state budget. Ensuring schools are safe to return to and the educators are vaccinated and have personal protective equipment available to them. And postponing standardized tests since many students are learning online don't have the same access to prepare for exams like they did before the pandemic. The Larimer County's coroner's office has identified the body found in Horsetooth Mountain Park last week as a missing 30-year-old Fort Collins man. According to Sadie Swanson at the Coloradoan, a news release from the Larimer County Sheriff's Office last week said that a Larimer County Natural Resources Ranger noticed an unoccupied vehicle parked at Horsetooth Mountain Park, and after returning three days later, found the vehicle still there. This prompted the ranger to contact the family of the owner of the vehicle, 30-year-old Eric J. Mueller of Fort Collins, who told the ranger that they hadn't heard from the man in several days. After launching an investigation, Larimer County Search and Rescue and LCSO investigators recovered what the coroner's office has now confirmed was Mueller's body. The official post from the coroner's office states the manner of death was ruled a suicide, with the cause of death being reported as multiple blunt force injuries. That's all I have right now. We'll be right back, but stay tuned after the break for the RMR Sports Report. You're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins.
afternoon, everyone. My name is Dixon Lawson. You're tuned in to the RMR Sports Report here on 90.5 KCSU FM Fort Collins. Today we're going to start off a little bit of a recap, and then we'll get into all that is happening for the rest of this week. Looking back towards last week, we had a doubleheader against UNLV for the volleyball team. Those games were on Thursday and Saturday. After UNLV swept the Rams on Thursday, they proceeded to at least get one set back on Saturday, but still dropped that one 3-1. to one. UNLV is currently tied for first place in the Mountain West with Boise State. Coming up tomorrow right here on 90.5 KCSU FM Fort Collins, we will have the first of two doubleheader games for the Border War against Wyoming. Both of those games will start tomorrow at 6 p.m. Last Saturday, we did have volleyball from the Texas A&M Invitational at the College Station in Texas. The softball team split that one and one. They dropped the first game against Texas Tech and then were able to bounce back and win seven to six against Texas A&M later that afternoon. Today, softball has a doubleheader against Seattle U and Arizona both at the Wildcat Invitational down in Tucson, Arizona. Men's and women's basketball both look to close out their season as they prepare for the Mountain West Tournament here in a couple weeks. They will both be playing against Air Force. One will be playing at Moby Arena. That'll be the men's. And the women will be traveling down to the U.S. Air Force Academy for that game on Saturday. It's been a little bit of a longer recap today on the RMR Sports Report, but do not fret. Be sure to tune in tomorrow and Saturday for the Border War live coverage from Laramie, Wyoming, as well as tune in every Tuesday and Thursday, 4 to 5, for the RMR Sports Report. My name is Dixon Lawson. Be sure to keep it locked. KCSU wants to hear your voice this Black History Month. Let us know what underrepresented people and events in Black history you think more people should be aware of. Leave us a voicemail at 970-491-2388 for a chance to be featured on KCSU. Again, that number is 970 970- Four nine one two three eight eight. House Bill 211021 is a bipartisan bill focused on improving peer support services and mental health. This bill is also intended to support those in recovery from mental health issues and substance abuse while addressing the shortage in mental health workers. Today, I'm joined by Mental Health Colorado CEO Vincent Achity to discuss what peer support services are and how they make a difference, as well as how the legislative process is going so far. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Yeah. Would you mind telling us a bit about Mental Health Colorado just to start and the role it's played so far in this bill? Sure. Uh, well, Mental Health Colorado is the state's leading advocacy organization to promote healthier minds across the lifespan for all Coloradans. Uh, we work to promote access to quality care, um, to end shame and discrimination, and improve mental well being for all. Um, our role, we've been around since 1953. And we are the state affiliate of Mental Health America. Um, we've been working on this peer bill uh, for a few years now. It was actually introduced in last year's legislative session uh, and then fell by the wayside as the pandemic disrupted all of the processes. Uh, and so we're back with it again. And uh, this has been a really important initiative for us as we expect it to improving the quality of care 
and also addressing some of the workforce shortage issues in the state. Can you explain a bit about what peer support services are for those who are unfamiliar? Peers, as we call them, are, are people who have had the experiences uh, in which they are involved in providing treatment support and recovery support. So peers are people who have lived through mental health conditions and are thriving uh, in recovery or um, managed substance use disorders and are living in recovery. And what's great about peers and important about them is that they've got this tremendous capacity to engage meaningfully with somebody who is living with those experiences currently and insight into what goes into the recovery process. And then why are support services needed at this time in comparison to, let's say, more typical clinical services with a uh, psychologist or psychiatrist? So there's a shortage of workforce um, nationwide, but particularly in Colorado's rural and frontier communities. Clinicians do not always have um, the kind of lived experience-based cultural competency that peers bring to the matter. They don't provide that meaningful, long-term, ongoing, day-by-day support that peers can provide, which is so essential. And then how does peer support also save the state money when it comes to mental health resources? Yeah, so, you know, one of the drivers of costs is the challenges that people face in abiding by treatment plans, which lead to hospital readmissions and emergency department visits, challenges in remaining employed or stably housed, Uh, And all of those kinds of challenges that people face in thriving result in costs incurred by communities and systems of care. And so as we put peers into the workforce to support people's successful recovery and stabilization, we'll alleviate costs on all of those other sort of crisis intervention points. And then how do you think that these lived experiences by peers can help get a better outcome for mental health patients? It's sometimes difficult for mental health patients to have meaningful engagement with uh, clinicians who really hear them. And peers have just, based on their lived experience, an innate capacity to really hear somebody. And that level of connectedness is really key for somebody to be able to progress and take next steps and feel like um, their concerns or their feelings are are not being dismissed um, by someone who doesn't really understand. And then I know that this bill was kind of pushed aside because of the pandemic, but how do you think that this pandemic has shown that mental health really needs to be a priority? Demand for mental health care is on the rise and will continue to be. We know that based on surveys and screenings administered by Mental Health America that anxiety and depression are higher than they've been in measurable history. This mental health crisis is sort of like a second wave of a pandemic with rising substance use, rising concerns for young people's mental health. And with that kind of poverty comes all kinds of additional mental health stressors. So it's a really critical time for us as a state to put essential supports in place for people. And then what do you think that this will do to improve mental health access overall, especially for people in poverty? 
It makes these kinds of peer support services reimbursable by Medicaid in more clinical contexts. We can have peer-run drop-in centers, recovery and wellness centers. Peers can help with employment services and prevention activities. Uh, peers could be doing mentoring for children and adolescents and providing warm lines for telehealth support. Um, and all kinds of different contexts become eligible for these kinds of services. And then why do you think this bill gained support from both parties? One of the good things about mental health advocacy is that uh, we've really been fortunate in having bipartisan support for a number of years now for mental health initiatives. Um, you know, mental health concerns cut across all party lines. Um, all, all families experience some kind of a mental health concern at some point or another. For us as a community, not just for the sake of our human compassion and our shared desire to support people's well-being, but it's also just sensible from a fiscal management standpoint to support people in recovery uh, rather than allow them to continue to fail to thrive. So it's really a win. Uh, to do better for mental health is a win all around, and there's not a whole lot of dispute about that. All right. And then before we go, do you have anything you'd like to add about Mental Health Colorado, whether that be involvement or how to get more information? Sure. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, if you visit mentalhealthcolorado.org, there's a number of different ways to take action and get involved. We really base, we, we aspire to be the voice for Coloradans' mental health. And to do that, we depend on your engagement in terms of uh, participating in letter writing campaigns and making calls and helping support the legislation. We produce a, a whole platform in each legislative session that identifies the bills that we're supporting across the lifespan, beginning with a strong start for all children uh, through wellness and aging. And we'll identify every single bill that we think ought to be supported in order to dramatically transform the mental health landscape. So you can follow the bill's progress and you can help bring it, attention to that, this platform to the elected officials. Uh, you can join our brainwave uh, which is our network of grassroots advocates, people with all kinds of lived experience, and we mobilize our Brainwave members to provide testimony uh, for bills and we'll train people so that they're comfortable telling their story in the three minutes that they're allowed uh, for testimony. And of course, we're a completely philanthropically supported organization and really depend on uh, the generosity of Coloradans to continue to be able to do our work. And we have regular uh, newsletter blasts that go out. So please visit mentalhealthcolorado.org and sign up to be part of what we're doing to promote healthier minds across the lifespan for all Coloradans. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Again, that was Mental Health Colorado CEO Vincent Achity. We'll be right back with national news. And in about five minutes, we'll be hearing some highlights from the KCSU podcast, Takes from the Anthropocene with Cody Cook.
KCSU thanks Tribal Rights for their continued underwriting support. Tribal Rights is located on College Avenue in Old Town, Fort Collins, and is a full custom tattoo, body piercing, and jewelry studio. Learn more at tribalrightstattoo.com. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is National News for Thursday, February 25th. One medical health group allegedly allowed ineligible patients to receive COVID-19 vaccines early. According to Tim Mack at National Public Radio, the national provider based in San Francisco provided vaccines to populations not yet approved for the vaccines based on company connections. This means that patients with a low risk for COVID-19 complications received vaccines before high-risk patients. One medical disagrees with these claims, saying that the company is not knowingly vaccinating ineligible populations. Locations in Washington State, Oregon, and California have all reported instances of this issue, with some ineligible patients being senior staff members of the company. In an internal communication, a doctor in California said of the incident, quote, It seems if you don't screen out those jumping the queue, then many will jump in line and push those that need the vaccine further behind, delaying a potentially life-saving injection. This could impact many members, end quote. Victims of the deadly California wildfires in 2017 and 2018 caused by Pacific Gas and Electricity's electrical grid are suing PG&E's former management for neglect. According to Michael Liedke at, at AP News, the trust suing PG&E represents over 80,000 victims of the fire, and they are suing several of PG&E's former executives and board members. Previously, PG&E reached a $13.5 billion settlement with victims, and within that settlement, they gave permissions for victims to target executives and board members associated with PG&E leading up to the fires. The company pled guilty to 84 felony counts of involuntary manslaughter for a 2018 wildfire that destroyed Paradise, California, and was fined $4 million. More than 25,000 homes were burned down and over 100 people died in Northern California's PG&E-related wildfires. U.S. passports may soon begin offering an ex-gender marker option, according to Val- Valeria Safronova at the New York Times. This, could change, could, this change could also involve social security cards and other forms of federal identification. The gender designation X is an opt-in designation for trans, non-binary, and intersex individuals who may not identify as male or female. Many states already introduced this designation for driver's licenses and birth certificates, including Colorado. Passports first allowed an individual to change their gender on their passport in 2010, but this requires proof of a medical transition from one sex to another, specifically from male to female or female to male. The American Civil Liberties Union is working with the White House to potentially add gender-neutral designations to all federal identification records and additionally to allow individuals to affirm their their gender identity without a court order or letter from a medical doctor. President Joe Biden is expected to sign an executive order to help invest in U.S.-created solutions for for product shortages. According to Franca Ordonez at National Public Radio, the Biden administration kept their focus on supply chain errors and shortages, and this new order is expected to help the U.S. to create critical materials that go into the manufacturing of personal devices, cars, and medical supplies. This order comes after the Biden administration says the pandemic showed how dependent Americans are on Chinese products. The shortages caused by the pandemic hitting China showed how far behind Chinese manufacturing issues could put American businesses and therefore cause potential harm to the U.S. economy. In an interview with National Public Radio, 
CEO John Neufer from the Semiconductor Industry Association said, quote, I think this pandemic has put in focus the reality that some of our supply chains need to be rebalanced, end quote. Now we're going to be hearing from Cody Cook with some highlights from his recent episode of Takes from the Anthropocene. As always, if you missed any part of our show today, feel free to check us out at Spotify or online at kcsufm.com slash news. I'm Coda Babcock, and that was National News for Thursday. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself today? Yeah, so uh, I'm from South Louisiana, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, I moved to Colorado in 2018 to come to college here at CSU. I'm an English and history major with a focus in creative writing and... History has a lot of the reason to do with why I'm here today. Okay. Well, awesome. Let's hop into it. What, uh, what do you got for us today? What happens when we ground our setting? You know, uh, the American narrative tends to, it's all about where we're going, and it's all about where we can be tomorrow. Mm. But I want to ask, you know, what if we just ground ourselves and we just focus on one place and over time look at that place and how the American narrative fits on that place? And I think we can see that the American ethos, this just just endless growth, you know, always tomorrow, always go forward. This ethos is really unsustainable, in some ways delusional and utterly impossible. Hmm. Yeah, so we see that this American ethos is unsustainable, and you say it's delusional. You also say it's impossible. What, what do you mean by impossible, Cody? So if we just ground our, our perspectives in one place, let's use me as an example. I'm from a town called Sulphur, Louisiana, and it's called Sulphur because in the early 20th century, they found huge deposits of sulfur in this one spot in Calcasieu Parish in southwest Louisiana. And in one year, they were able to take out so much sulfur from this one spot that it could have supplied the entire world's demand. (laughs) Yeah, extraction to the extreme. One spot supplying the entire world's demand of one mineral. That's insane. And if you look at sulfur today, it's a huge petrochemical corridor. It's not just sulfur. It's all kinds of fossil fuels. The natural gas is big in it, too. But the entire coast of Louisiana today is just one big petrochemical corridor. My own experience growing up, my neighborhood that I grew up in and me and all my friends grew up in, it was surrounded to the north, east, and south by these petrochemical refineries. The one to the south is actually the most recent one. It was built in the past like four years. Mm. And it's literally within spitting distance of our neighborhood. You can see it. Mm. It's right there. When this whole petro boom was was beginning, did anybody have any foresight? Did anybody see this coming and, and think about? Well, Fisher, the foresight was on growth. Mm. The foresight was on business and opportunity and being able to, you know, this, this idea of progress. You know, we want more opportunities for people, but that left no room for environmental considerations. They mm. focused the opportunity on what they could grow and what they could get from it that they didn't actually focus on the landscape itself. And I think you can draw parallels between that focus on the opportunity, focus on the potential in the future without regard to the actual landscape, the here and the now, Mm. this the ground under our feet. I think that's kind of behind this American trope of, you know, I just want to leave home. If I could just get out of this place and go to another place, things will be better. Things will be better elsewhere tomorrow. I think this plays into that trope of just focusing on the opportunity instead of the actual landscape of where you are and what that means. I think that the way of our thinking and how we think about what is possible for ourselves blinds us to the reality uh, literally under our feet. I want to talk about George Lakoff and his ideas of framing and framework. Uh, He's a cognitive linguist and he basically shows how these ideas that we talk about, these conversations that we have, 
they depend on prearranged images. You know, these, these ideas we discussed, they aren't blank slates. We come into these conversations with prearranged understandings of what we're talking about. Mm. And these can draw on, you know, certain images. So if I were to say, you know, progress, or growth, opportunity, those three words probably draw in a host of images into your mind. Right. So if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly here, this whole idea of frames and frameworks, it's almost like the, the, the lens of a camera through which we understand the reality or in the world around us. Is this right? Yeah, exactly. A lens, a camera through which we make sense of reality. And this is why narratives and stories mean so much to us. This, this, this story that we tell ourselves of what is possible for ourselves. So when we talk about success and opportunity, usually that's a story that has these images of, you know, being able to buy a house, being able to buy a car for ourselves, being able to water my lawn, being able to buy whatever I want. That's usually how the story of success goes. But we hardly ever ask ourselves what that success actually depends on. Mm. You know, where are my groceries coming from? What built my house? How does my lawn stay watered? Those kinds of things. And I think this American mindset of, you know, opportunity and growth and, you know, there's always going to be a better tomorrow. This mindset just blinds itself to the landscape that it's actually built on and the resources that it depends on. And if you just look at Fort Collins right now in Loveland, the, the, the land between Fort Collins and Loveland, there's, you can just see this huge suburban sprawl. Mm. You know, I actually work in them in the summer with some landscaping companies. They, it's, just, it's just suburban sprawl, huge expansions, you know, growth. But Colorado's in the middle of a drought. You know, we're low on water right now. How can we justify these hugely expensive and energy-intensive, resource-intensive projects in the midst of a drought? And I think this mindset of not really paying attention to the actual landscape and the nature, this is the same logic that has killed Louisiana's coast. Wow. Well, yeah, so, so, so far I've heard you talking about this idea of the American endless growth mindset, right? This lens that we've been looking at uh, do you have any idea, is there another lens that takes everything, including the entire landscape, into consideration? Maybe yeah. something more holistic. Yeah, yeah, that's actually great to bring up. Even though this American mindset of always growth, always progress, even though it's so pervasive and dominant in our society, it is by no means the only way to look at the world. So actually, indigenous cultures actually understand things a little differently than we do. Some scholars, Raymond Piorati and Daniel Wildcat, they talk about traditional ecological knowledge and... I can't really sum up the whole thing here, but basically indigenous cultures tend to look at things spatially. You know, we look at things temporally. Uh, where am I today? How can I get to tomorrow? How can I be better tomorrow? But that's not how these people look at things. History can be understood on the landscape. They look around them and the, those are the stories they tell. The landforms, the landscape, the actual physical world is how they make sense of themselves, the history where they move forward. And I think this is something that we could really learn a lesson from. I think if you can look at South Louisiana between those two lenses, either this American always growth, always progress mindset, uh, thinking of history temporally, if we look at South Louisiana that way, it's, it's kind of hard to see the problems of the coast that I've been talking about. I was never taught these things in history class. But if we look at history and if we look at ourselves and everything about our culture, if we look at that spatially, how it actually fits on the landscapes, I think that's a much more accurate way to see what's actually happening in South Louisiana. I actually watched this documentary a while ago. It's called Taming the Wild, and it's about indigenous cultures in California. Mm. And there's a really great quote that I took away from that. Someone said, we live in a world of fences. 
I think that's a great way to put it. I think that's a great way to think of, you know, how boxed in and parcelized this American mindset is, you know, like the, this is, this is not how the real world operates. Mm. You know, things don't stay within boundaries. Ecology doesn't work that way. We can build a fence, but that's not how it actually works. It seems like this American mindset doesn't quite place itself in, in the realist interpretation of the world around us. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We like to think of the world as like in market terms, economic terms, the, the possibility of a business to grow. But that's not the real world. Like you said, we don't place ourselves in this, the realist world. And if you've read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, that does a great job of showing this. She talks about, obviously, pesticides and the widespread spraying of pesticides and how wrongly we thought that this widespread spraying of pesticides would not have consequences outside of the area that we sprayed them in. But Rachel Carson shows that, by God, yes, it does. Yes, the, the, the chemicals that we spray in one place end up in the rivers and wind up in a totally different place. There are no boundaries to nature. Things work outward. Things work spatially. You know, in America, this American mindset, the American mindset thinks that its consequences and the consequences of its ambitions can be localized, fenced in. That's, that's just not how this works. And Rachel Carson shows that too. And have you heard of the dead zone off the coast of the Gulf of Mexico? I, I haven't. No. What was no, that about? I don't think you have. And I never did until I came here and I read about it online because they don't teach us about it there. So pesticides that are sprayed in big monoculture farms in Nebraska, Iowa, anywhere else in the Mississippi watershed, all of those pesticides, just like Carson talks about, run off from the farms into the rivers. They wind up at this terminus point, the end of the Mississippi River in the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. So all of these chemicals, they end up in the Gulf of Mexico and they create a hypoxic zone. Hypoxia meaning lack of oxygen. Mm. It's, it's terrible for the water and for the, the actual ecosystems that end up with these chemicals. And it's created this, what they call a dead zone of fish aren't able to live if there's no oxygen in the water. Mm. And they come from these pesticides that are sprayed far off in different parts of the country. Right. Uh, the EPA talks about it. There's a great documentary called Troubled Waters that they do a great job of going into it. And it's just another example of how the, our ambitions and what we like to think we can do, they're not localized to where we do that. <laughs> the, the pesticides aren't localized to the farm. They run off. They end up in a different place. And so I think, going back to what I said about grounding our perspective, I think if we ground our perspective and we ground these things in Louisiana... That's just one example. It allows us to see that it's not just the Gulf of Mexico that has a problem. It's everything that leads to the mm. Gulf of Mexico that has a problem. It's not just the place and what's wrong with the place. It's everything that leads to the place. Mm. And I think we can also see, you know, when we look at obviously how the landscape and the actual nature has been cheated by this wrong mindset, we can also see who is actually cheated by this, the quote-unquote benefits of growth and progress. So when we compare this one perspective, right, of the good life is a life that's, that's close and, and has a healthful connection to its place, uh, from my perspective, when we look at the American, or possibly even the white American good life, it, it depends on quite different things, right? It, it depends on this ability to, to get up and leave. There's a stretch of the Mississippi River from Baton Rouge to New Orleans called Cancer Alley. And that pretty much sums it up right there. People living in this stretch, they report disproportionately high rates of cancer and upper respiratory illnesses. And it's because they live in close proximity to these petrochemical refineries. And this is a problem that's just ongoing and it hasn't been addressed because it just doesn't fit into that narrative of growth and always moving forward. And it's just more of the same all the time. 
I, I read an article by published by the newspaper Southerly the other day, an article by Sarah Sneath, and she talks about a pipeline that's being pushed like like today, like it's still in process. It's being pushed through those same communities, mm-hmm. these black and indigenous communities that aren't consenting to the pipeline. Wow. But the government officials are pushing this pipeline through because it's about growth. It's mm. about progress. It's about growing that economy and growing those opportunities. Yeah. So this just doesn't make sense to me, Cody. It, it seems like the state is continuing on, right? Business as usual, despite being in the face of erosion and sickness. And for you and your friends, it's <laughs> taken the form of, of moral degradation. You know, Fisher, it doesn't make sense to me either. Louisiana can be looked at as a place that is dependent upon its own destruction. And I think that kind of mindset of not paying attention to the actual landscape that's being destroyed, only focusing on the, the quote unquote opportunities and growth that come from it. I think we, we can apply that to the nation at large. You've, you've painted a pretty grim reality today from your perspective. Do we have any hope? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm deeply worried. I'll say that. But I do think there's something like hope. I think there's something to look forward to. Yeah. Um, I just logically, I don't think Louisiana is going to kill itself. <laughs> that, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I think at some point, they're already in the process of trying to restore the coast. I think at some point they will make that drastic change. Yeah, well, it's not much, but it is a small glimmer of hope for us to hang our hats <laughs> on, huh? I want to thank you so much for all these insightful thoughts that you've brought to the table. Is there one last thing that you'd like to leave listeners with today? Ground yourselves. I think if we just ground ourselves and look at where we are, look at our hometown, look where we come from, how long can it last the way it is? How long can it operate the way that it's operating? Powerful stuff. Thank you, Cody. Thanks for all the listeners. Hope everyone has a great rest of your day. For more on this podcast episode of Takes from the Anthropocene, you can visit kcsufm.com slash podcast. We'll be right back with COVID-19 updates. KCSU wants to hear your voice this Black History Month. Let us know what underrepresented people and events in Black history you think more people should be aware of. Leave us a voicemail at 970 491 2388 for a chance to be featured on KCSU. Again, that number is Collins Rotaract Club is a Rotary-sponsored volunteer and service organization for young men and women ages 18 to 30 within Colorado State University and the Fort Collins community. Our club addresses the physical and social needs of the local community and promotes international understanding and peace through the framework of friendship and service. Rotaract's purpose is to provide the opportunity for Rotaractors to enhance the knowledge and skills that will assist them in personal development to address the physical and social needs of their communities and to promote better relations between all people worldwide. We thrive to abide by the Rotary's guiding principles of service, ethics, and goodwill. We meet every other Monday at 6 p.m. in the Lori Student Center, room 306. Contact Rotaract at gmail.com for more information. And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Koda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Thursday. There are a cumulative total of over 2,300 cases of COVID-19 among students, staff, and faculty since May 2020. 
the university is seeing an upward trend in new cases, similar to that seen in the weeks following Halloween. Larimer County has moved up to a high-risk score and sits at a level yellow concern on Colorado's dial framework. There are over 19,000 cases and 225 deaths related to COVID-19 in the county. There are 355 recorded outbreaks, and over 82,000 residents have received vaccinations. 61 new positive cases have been reported in the past 24 hours, and every day in the past two weeks has seen at least 50 new cases. The county's case rate is at over 260 per 100,000 residents, and positive tests have never made up more than 10% of all test results. 17 COVID patients are currently in the hospital. Overall hospital utilization is at 70%, while ICUs are beginning to fill up at 77%. The county remains on a downward trend, but rising hospitalizations threaten the county's ability to manage the health crisis. Statewide, Colorado has a total of over 423,000 cases, and over 2.5 million people have been tested so far. Nearly 6,000 deaths were recorded among cases and over 5,800 were due to COVID-19 complications. Colorado has a total of nearly 4,000 outbreaks. In the United States, there are more than 28.3 million reported cases of COVID-19 and over 505,000 deaths. Wednesday, cases increased by over 70,000 and deaths increased by over 3,000. In the past two weeks, cases have gone down by 35%, deaths have gone down by 16%, and hospitalizations by 30%. The southwestern U.S. is currently experiencing a rise in cases, particularly in Texas and the regions near its border. The Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine has been reviewed by the Food and Drug Administration, which found that the vaccine is safe and effective. This means that the vaccine met the needs for emergency authorization, making it the third vaccine approved for COVID-19 in the U.S. The only way for those not yet eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine to protect themselves and others from virus transmission and complications is by washing your hands for 20 seconds regularly, wearing a face mask or cloth face covering, avoiding touching your face, and staying at home when possible. Information from this segment was gathered from the CSU COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the New York Times, and the Centers for Disease Control. For more information on vaccine eligibility, go to covid19.colorado.gov. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. If you missed any part of our show so far, check us out at Spotify or online at kcsufm.com news. Today, I am joined by Piper Russell, who recently wrote a story in The Collegian about CSU's online business program. So just to start off with, why does the CSU College of Business's online program stand out when compared with other programs nationally? Um, so the main three things that make it stand out nationally were that it has always um, been a leader in distance education, and they just started using um, the Mosaic digital learning platform for their um, distance education, and then also they have a very student-centric approach, so definitely focusing on helping each student with their individual needs and then also the program's format and schedule flexibility. All right, and then which programs in particular were recognized and why? So the online MBA program was ranked number one in Colorado and then number 34 nationally among public schools. And then the online master's in computer information systems program was also ranked number one in Colorado and then number 21 nationally among public schools. 
And then the, um, yeah, so the US News and World Report um, rankings consider factors like student engagement, faculty credentials and training, expert opinion, student services and technology support, and then student excellence as a basis for evaluation. So those things, yeah, were why they were recognized. All right, thank you. And then how does this, how do these programs really cater to the circumstances of a variety of different student needs? So what I heard was that the programs are very flexible for students. So students can really, um, yeah, just kind of work around their schedules and stuff. Um, they have the option to um, do either on demand, which would be like streaming um, lectures and classes and then online real time, which would be mosaic. So that would be basically joining an in-person class online. And then also they can just do it in person as well. Um, yeah, so they can really, um, choose which format works best for them. And then there um, has also been an increase in the number of women and then active military and veterans enrolled in the online MBA. All right, and then what have different students said in support of this program's ranking? So both of the students in the online MBA program that I spoke to, um, both seemed like they had very positive experiences with the programs. Um, they both talked about how the flexibility of the programs has, has helped them out with their work schedules. And then also Heather Short talked a lot about how she really saw what she learned from the program applied in her real life. And she also talked about how she can definitely see why the program was ranked so highly. Do you have anything to say about writing this story or working with the Collegian at all? Um, I really enjoyed writing the story and the Collegian has been a great um, place to just get more experience writing and um, learning more about journalism. All right. Thank you so much, Piper. Thank you. All right. Again, that was Piper Russell with the Collegian. We'll be right back. KCSU wants to hear your voice this Black History Month. Let us know what underrepresented people and events in Black history you think more people should be aware of. Leave us a voicemail at 970-491-2388 for a chance to be featured on KCSU. Again, that number is 970-491-2388. You join us here on 90.5 KCSU. Here on the back nine as Mr. Odom steps up to the tee box. Odom having just a phenomenal day out there. He is really making quick work of his opponents. He's going for the first spot as he drives this one off. It looks like it's sailing. And boy, oh boy, is it. Luckily, everyone here was tuned in to 90.5 KCSU-FM to hear all the action. KCSU always has and always will bring you sports. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News for Thursday. A judge ruled Tuesday that California can enforce its laws on net neutrality. According to Brian Fung at CNN Business, 
broadband providers previously sought to overturn the law as it prohibits providers from changes in access or speed for certain apps and websites. In 2018, the state passed strict net neutrality laws as a result of the Federal Communication Commission lessening their net neutrality rules. California's law is the strongest neutrality law in the country, leading other states to look to it as a model. The Trump administration previously sued California for this law, arguing that the FCC had exclusive power when it came to net neutrality rules. Judge John Mendez decided to allow the law to be enforced after a conference call hearing. One attorney said the judge, quote, seemed to think it was very important that internet service providers had failed to show that they face significant harm from California from California's net neutrality requirements, end quote. ByteDance plans to select a new global head of research and development for social media platform TikTok, according to Yingji Yang and Brenda Go at Rotors. ByteDance is choosing Zhu Wenjia to move to Singapore to head global research and development for the app, including working on recommendation algorithms. His position will work closely with the interim head of TikTok, Vanessa Pappas, both of them will report directly to the ByteDance CEO. In 2020, TikTok moved research outside of China and began seeking out employees from other tech companies for roles in its operation. This has not yet been confirmed by ByteDance, but comes from unnamed employees familiar with the decision. Facebook will restore news content to Australian users after reaching a deal to pay Australian news publishers for their stories. According to Jacqueline Diaz and Shannon Bond at National Public Radio, this follows a law that passed in Australia to allow news organizations to work with social media to be paid for their work. This is negotiated by individual publishers, meaning that not all companies will charge the same amount to social media platforms to use their content. Facebook's managing director for Australian New Zealand region said of the deal, quote, We are satisfied that the Australian government has agreed to a number of changes and guarantees that address our core concerns about allowing commercial deals that recognize the value our platform provides to publishers relative to the value we receive to them from them, end quote. Australian Facebook users were previously unable to access news on Facebook due to their refusal to work with the Australian government. That's all for Tech News. We'll be back in about two minutes with Weird News and our RMR Weather Report. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is Targa. And this is Doug, Sagittarius. We're down with all second thoughts. So down and you making this. love to the soulful oh, sounds yeah. on 90.5 KCSU for calling. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey. And sometimes, we need to get a little bit weird. So here's a couple of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world today. An Alaskan congressman is arguing that a ban on guns in Congress would be ineffective because he can kill people with his bare hands. According to Liz Ruskin at Alaska Public Media, arguments were heated on a Zoom meeting of the U.S. House Natural Resources Committee February 19th as a member discussed a rule to ban guns from the committee hearing room. 
As a longtime supporter of gun rights, Alaska Congressman Don Young claimed that a ban on guns would be ineffective, saying, quote, Talking about weapons, I happened to serve during Korea, and I was well trained in how to kill somebody with my hands, end quote. Young argued that the ban was unnecessary, and he, as he had not yet attacked anybody, despite his apparent ability to do so. Talking to the California Representative Jared Huffman, saying, quote, Maybe we all have to come in with our hands tied together so we can't attack one another. You've seen me in this committee, Mr. Huffman, the rest of you, all this time. I get very angry, but I haven't attacked anybody. And the idea now that you're going to be protecting us from ourselves is really a divisive uh, amendment. End quote. Colorado Representative Lauren Boebert also objected to the ban, saying that it would violate her Second Amendment rights and that she would require a personal security detail. She made these comments as her Zoom backdrop featured a bookshelf adorned with multiple firearms, including a handgun, shotgun, and two rifles. Despite these objections, the committee gun ban was passed. An Illinois lawmaker has introduced a bill to ban the sales of video games like Grand Theft Auto in hopes it would reduce carjackings in real life. According to Zach Klingenpeel of the Chicago Sun-Times, Illinois State Representative Marcus Evans Jr. filed House Bill 3531 for consideration to the be voted into law February 20th. The bill is intended to amend a 2012 law which prevents the sale of violent video games to minors. The bill would amend the law to ban the sale of video games that depict, quote, psychological harm, including, quote, motor vehicle theft with a passenger or driver present, end quote. The bill would also change the definition of violent video game to any game in which players, quote, control a character within the video game that is encouraged to perpetuate human-on-human violence, which the player kills or otherwise causes serious or physical or psychological harm to another human or animal, end quote. Evans pointed to the video game Grand Theft Auto V as the reason behind the increase in carjackings, saying, quote, Grand Theft Auto and other violent video games are getting in the minds of our young people and perpetuating the normalcy of carjacking. Carjacking is not normal, and carjacking must stop, end quote. Grand Theft Auto V, also referred to as GTA V, is the fifth installment of the Grand Theft Auto video game franchise, in which players are given the ability to steal cars and rob banks. The bill's introduction may come as a surprise to some given the timing. NBC Chicago reported that the rise in carjackings began in 2020, when the carjacking rate more than doubled. Grand Theft Auto V, on the other hand, was first released in 2013 and has not yet received another installment in the franchise since. An Arizona man has been accused of faking his own kidnapping to get out of work. According to Johnny Diaz of the New York Times, the man, Brandon Sewells, was arrested last week on a charge of false reporting to law enforcement. The police in Coolidge, Arizona, said in a statement that outlined the scheme that they believed was intended to get Mr. Sewells excused from his job at a tire store. The police were first called about 5.25 p.m. on February 10th, when officers responded to a report about an injured man in an area near the train tracks, houses, and a city water tower in Cool Ridge, a city of about 13,000 people, and 55 miles outside of Phoenix, Arizona. The caller reported that the man was going in and out of consciousness. When the officers arrived, they found a man, later identified as Mr. Souls, with his hands bound behind his back, by a belt and purple bandana, stuffed in his mouth, according to the police. A photo from the police department showed the man with his hands tied while lying on his side on the ground. 
Mr. Sewell's told officers that after completing an errand that morning, he returned to his home, where two masked men abducted him near his vehicle, struck him in the back of his head, and knocked him unconscious, according to the arrest report. The men, according to Mr. Sewell's, quote, drove him around in a vehicle before they left him in the area where he was found, end quote. The police said, Mr. Sewell's was taken to a hospital where he was evaluated and interviewed by the police. According to the department, he told investigators that he had been kidnapped because his father had a large amount of money hidden throughout the desert. After days of investigation, the police found that there was no evidence of the kidnapping, with the camera footage that would have depicted the abduction showing nothing. They also determined that the hidden money was also fraudulent. In the statement, the police said that Mr. Sewell's admitted during an interview with detectives that he had made out the kidnapping story, which led to his arrest. He was booked at the Cool Ridge Police Department and released with a court date. That's all the weird news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. And now, for the weather. Today, the weather was colder but drier than yesterday, with a high of 35 and a low of 21, with mostly cloudy skies and moderate winds. Friday, you can expect it to stay dry but get much windier, with a high of 43 and a low of 23, with 20 mile per hour wind speeds. Saturday, the sun will peak out a bit more, but there will be a 20% chance of snow, with a high of 36 and a low of 17, and 15 mile per hour winds. Sunday will warm up a bit, with slower wind speeds and a high of 39 with a low of 19, no chance of snow. Monday will be warm and sunny with a high of almost 50 degrees and a low of 24 with moderate winds. And Tuesday will experience mostly sunny skies with a high of 55 and a low of 29. And for Wednesday's weather, you'll have to tune into the Rocky Mountain Review next Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. to find out. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Thomas Taylor, Asher Corrin, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Matt Guzmarati, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. So thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.